Good morning, Sleepy Town. I'm Sho, and you're listening to The Art House, Art House Radio, coming to you from 88.5 FM, WCUG Cougar Radio, and from 96.3 FM, Ohm Radio, located in Charleston, South Carolina. This week, I didn't necessarily get to sit down with Bo Bartlett. I got to sit across from Bo Bartlett as he finds himself back in Columbus, Georgia, for the Big Story Artist Talk, held at the Bo Bartlett Center on October 5th. I sat in, got part of the conversation, which I'll present to you in full right now. We'll see you back at the end of the hour. Noah, Carl, and Bob. So the exhibition is aptly called or named Big Story. Could you share your process for selecting the pieces featured in this exhibition and elaborate on what qualifies as a big story in your perspective? Okay. Um, I think uh, at the nucleus of, of, of the, the idea behind the show, we, we, we wanted to bring painters together that worked in the tradition of very large scale works, narrative, and using the figure, um, and in many cases, multiple figures, uh, to tell a narrative of some type. And um, some of those narratives are very overt. The paintings, uh, you know, they tell a story directly, um, just through their imagery. Some of the narratives are more uh, subverted, more poetic. Um, but I think that uh, we, we wanted a, a, a very wide-ranging, diverse group of artists that, that work in this tradition, but, but come at it from different angles, from, from different, slightly different traditions, slightly different voices, slightly different uh, uses, uses of the media, um, uh, but, but all having this, this thread in common. Um, and uh, you know, works that, that really, they tell something either on a... On a um, uh, macro level of, of what's happening in the story or something that's more internal, more psychological. So the, a lot of these paintings, I think maybe something that binds them all together is that these artworks, de- they depict moments that aren't literal. You know, the, the, these aren't things that are actually happening in the real world. They're really happening on a psychological stage or an emotional stage or a mythological stage. So they, they, they take place inside of our, our psyche, our collective consciousness. I think that uh, when Noah and Carl first contacted me, they had already been involved with the process for a number of years, the con- conversation. No, just, just a few months maybe, or a few weeks even. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. How did the five years come about then? Because uh, I... If you look at those emails, you'll see it. <laughs> uh, it's, that's... Time, time. There was a pandemic. So was a strange. Pandemic. <laughs> that's right. Right. Oh, that's true. When the center was opening. Is that five years? Yes, it is. Um, but so I think that, uh, you know, there'd been a conversation going for a while about the idea of the show, you know, um, the large scale figurative narrative paintings. Um, and I think that Frank Galuska, a, a California artist, had actually proposed the idea to, to one of you guys. And, um, and I, I think I got involved because they needed a place to, to have the show. <laughs> and we had the center. And uh, so they said, well, you know, maybe you can have a painting in it too, Bo. Uh, <laughs> and that was fair. Um, so that's how I got involved. No. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, regardless of, of I mean, the paintings are all realistic, are representational and narrative, so to speak, and multi-figure, so to speak. But I think that, you know, as artists, we we all love all kinds of artwork. I mean, I think it's important to realize that, you know, it wasn't a prerequisite that the work had to be, you know, realistic or representational, just narrative. And so... Um, as artists, we, I mean, uh, uh, you can speak for yourselves, but, you know, I think that we all, we love all styles of work and all types of art. And it's just that, you know, we uh, have our own little way of working that relates to our temperaments. And it just so happens that, uh, you know, we, we tend to prefer to, to paint more or less recognizable imagery. So um, the work, the work in the show has a, an aesthetic that sort of, um, continuous with the, the, the driving force of the center and sort of American realism and uh, the tradition out of which my, my work has grown. Um, so I think that, that it's amazing. In this case, we were able to get, on, on, without a, 
in almost every case, we were we were able to get the exact painting from the artists that we wanted to get. And uh, Carl and Noah and I and Mike um, hashed around for quite a while with certain paintings, like what would look good with what and what would work well with what. But for the most part, we got like the premier paintings from each of us that we wanted to have in the show. Um, so I'm super excited to see this body of work together. And, and these artists, um, I don't know, have we all shown together? I don't know that I've ever shown with any of you in a show before. Maybe Margaret we showed once in Delaware. Um, but, you know, it, so it's great to see this, this work all together in the same place and these artists together in the same place. Oh, yeah, that's right. Were you in that show in Delaware? Um, anyway, so uh, Carl, you want to you wanna try to answer the question? Wait, what was the question? <laughs> sort of like why, how the show Yeah, so, I mean, I, it really just came out of conversations um, about, I mean, it's, you know, you grow up looking at art, a lot of art, all of us do, um, and I was attracted to large-scale narrative stories. I find myself, every time I go through the Met, I'm always I'm glued to that Joan of Arc painting and stuff. You know, I just I can't help it. I love it. And uh, we just started um, kicking around the idea, like, well, man, it would be so great to get some of the people we really, really admire to have like a show of this thing. And that's basically how it started, was just through text message conversations, really. Well, I guess I would be painting, and you'd be painting, and you're like you're taking a break, and you're texting somebody about like, you know, that's, that's really kind of how the, the whole thing got started. And um, I was excited about it just because, I mean, I have a deep love of narrative art, but also was, um, you know, to... to be able to gather up some of the people who I've admired for so long to have you know a, a, sh a show an exhibition of their work like that I think that was the driving force for me to do it um, and just to see something focused on on narrative rather than you know just kind of a hodgepodge of stuff I, I wanted something focused like that that's what that's kind of how I got into it you know? Just to clarify uh, and to cover up Bo's modesty or clarify his modesty, I think that Carl and I approached Bo because he's so clearly a figurehead of this of this movement and bringing figurative realism um, back into contemporary art. Uh, I went to the the same art school that Bo did, but but many decades later, um, and uh, saw Bo's work hanging in the museum there, and uh, it, it seeing his work set me on a path for the kind of work that I wanted to do. Um, actually, some of the some of the work here, some of the work that's hanging on the walls in here, we got to see uh, earlier today, has been like stuff I've been looking at for I can't even tell you how long. So it's like insanely cool to be seeing some of that stuff. So that's why Bose joined us. We, we, we sought him out uh, to help focus us, direct us, um, his, his, um, just his wisdom and having um, been an artist for, for so many decades and um, at the forefront of it, um, we, we really needed his his guidance. All right, well, I think that answers that question about stories, but it leads me to the next question, and it's not for the curators, it's actually for the artists. So, and something I think, I can't remember was Noah or Carl wrote this in an email, um, but stories possess the power to influence, persuade, shock, delight, enlighten. Do you, as artists, feel a sense of responsibility for the stories you're conveying in your work? or a duty to share a particular narrative with your audience. So, as, and this is again, and I guess you're artist, but let's hear what the other artists have to say about that. Honestly, folks, I didn't used to. I didn't used to. I'm the oldest person here. And where I, my, ex, my education is an abstract expressionist because there was no such thing as figuration when I was a, when I was a kid. And I teach a, in a school, and it's a very healing thing to teach the very things we all taught ourselves in order to, I wanted to tell stories. And I did not, I did not. Um, I, came, I came out of a, an English department at Chapel Hill in which you simply wrote novels about one's own compulsions. You wrote the novel you needed to write that had everything to do with you and what hurt you, basically. And the way that art worked was that it was a way for you to make something right that never had been in your life. So long story short, the painting I've got over there is very old. Um, and the way it started was I knew a, a woman who was a dwarf and we were friends. I'd done some paintings of her, and she asked me why I never painted her naked. And that, you know, so I took on the idea of painting her naked, and at the same moment, 
that she wanted that to happen. You can see that my work just tumbles together, you, you know? It starts with a person, and then I ask myself, what, what is unique about that person, and what's unique about the person's problem, or what it is that hurts them? And it's very obvious with a dwarf what the hell's gone wrong, and what's hurt them, and what they're up against in this world. But frankly, I fixated on Monet's Olympia very quickly as a painting in which point of view is pushed on the viewer very fast, and people went nuts in Paris about it. You are implicated in that painting. You're presented, because of the composition, you're put in the position of the John walking in that door. And frankly, I wanted the level of that implication to rest on the heads of every single person that looked at it. Now that's not, I, I, I'm over there looking at that painting, right? And right next to it is Zoe's, which is just this gorgeous, celebration, all the good things in life. I'm sorry. And I do ask myself, what the heck in that um, is wrong with me? I do, I do find, I once said that beauty matters to me when it's damaged and it casts a shadow. And that is, that is true for me. I put people in trouble and frankly, for me, the act of making the painting is to see them triumph over something that happened. And in that painting, I did a whole bunch of those Olympia paintings, and I always saw those women as, as soldiers in a foxhole. I saw them together versus that John that was walking in that door. And I, I ran that game around a few times. But I will admit, walking around this room, it is a hell of a privilege to be in a group like this and to see your work in company. When you go to a, a, your own show, I'm serious, I've never had this experience of figurative work like this, where the piece next to mine made me question everything about me. That's a big gift, for which I'm deeply grateful to. I'll take a swing at this question. Um, I uh, have a nerdy answer, which is that thinking about narrative painting, um, I was always interested in this, but when we were starting painting, it wasn't nearly as common and visible as it is now. We had, you know, Bo Bartlett's work was always visible, um, Steve Asale, Vincent Desiderio were teachers of mine, so I had these few people who I was watching to be seeing doing this. Um, R.H. Ives Gamel talks about creating paintings and using representation. Um, and the importance of creating poetic pictures and basically using the language of representation as a way that communicates with your viewer. And it's the point of contact with your viewer. Because as a painter, you become very impassioned about the underpainting and the layers and the textures and the brushwork and the colors. But honestly, your viewer is less interested in that because they do other things and they have rich, full lives in other parts of the world. And so narrative painting then can become this point of commonality, of, of connection for you to communicate an idea of your thoughts and ideas and stories, hopefully then to them. And I think one of the things that is maybe different about maybe just me or maybe a younger generation is that I see that um, instead of art being this thing that is about my individual expression and personal creative expression, almost like therapy, that in fact art serves a purpose in terms of how it connects. Um, my original form that I was in was actually theater. And so that very overtly is about design and telling a story. And I do sort of think about my pictures and designing them, constructing them. My process is a bit theater-based. Um, but I'm actually very interested in the way narratives then do create connection. And I think that the art that is most moving to me, whether it's painting or other forms, are things that do connect deeply. And so I'm interested in, in narrative and because of that, because of how that language connects as opposed to it just being like a personal expression. And going back to your like, what is its responsibility? Then I do feel responsible for how my viewer might read or interpret, be confronted with, um, be, be um, comforted by, you know, Matisse says like an art should be like a armchair at the end of a long day. You know, what is the emotional response, the thoughtful response 
that you that you are giving to your viewer, and I do feel a bit of like responsibility responsibility to that. I care about that. Maybe it's not responsibility; it's care. It's so interesting. Both of you touched on things that I was thinking about. Um, I, if I think about the viewer, it takes me out of my connection with the work that I'm making. Um, and it's not that I, to say I, I'm irresponsible in that. But um, first and foremost, I, painting has like literally saved my life in the way that it's connected me with the celebration of life because I'm um, fully committed at this point right now, at least in my life, is um, representing what it feels like to be loved and feel connection, like real authentic connection and how can I convey that in my work. And through that process, it's like connected me with so much more in life and so I I have a hard time personally if I paint from a point of pain um, so for me my purpose is how can I paint from the point of love and try to somehow maintain that sure. yeah so anyway um, I guess when I think of painting I think of it as like a challenge so and I do feel like I have a responsibility to my community through painting and I think I don't like to preach to my community so rather than do that I try to just make images as if I'm talking to myself like what what would I need to hear in a specific moment or what can I create that will speak to you know people like me through an image and just like challenge them as far as like the possibilities that are available to themselves, I guess like emotionally and like, um, I guess ideally. So with painting, um, I would say, or with like the narratives that I create, I just try to, you know, create images specifically, I won't say I specifically speak to black men, but you know, me as a black man, I try to like talk to black men about vulnerability and like spaces of being that you know can be pushed on to us that aren't necessarily um you know beneficial to you know who we are or like where we can be as far as like um producing like value within our communities so i think when I, I, I do feel like I am connected to responsibility as a painter and like as a person who just you know curates images that people can like widely like have access to so with that responsibility I just try to like you know just speak to myself and you know just give to my community what I wish was given to me yeah I'll just have a one-liner for it I think when I was younger I used to always uh, try to make the paintings that I wanted to see in the world um, and I do think about the audience I do think about people. It's hard to say what you think about when you paint, but I, I do know that it sort of slips back and forth between, you know, me just experiencing and making it and then thinking about what it's going to be like once it gets out into the world. But as I've gotten older, I think now more and more I think about um, not what paintings I want to see in the world, but like what paintings does the world need to see? So there's a kind of responsibility about making a painting that, you know, I only have so many paintings left, I'm older. So, you know, like what paintings could I make that the world needs? Um, I do think about an audience, but that's not the first starting point. Um, like, I know it's going out into the world, so I want to make something that feels rel relative in the context of a work of art. So it has to feel like a work of art, you know? But, um, but the initial starting point is my internal connection. And if I feel like I can deeply connect with that, then hopefully it'll connect with someone else. And, and, and ultimately, I can't really control that too. You know, like that's in the hands of the eye of the beholder, um, how they're going to respond to that. But if my initial intention is with the heart, then hopefully that'll connect to someone's heart. Yes. 
So if you would speak up, you all, and talk into the microphone because the people in the back can't hear you. Um, but I'm going to let Najee add to this because I know he yeah, has just something to add. Appreciate it. No, just the only thing that I would say, my work is definitely centered in black visual culture, uh, black culture. Um, most of my work is typically centered around this, growing up in the South. I'm from originally from Arkansas. Um, with the piece that I've got in the show right now, it's really more mixed media, which incorporates photo montage. I'm sorry? The ball one. Thank you. <laughs> so it's... Um, uh, photo montage, and then I go in and paint and collage into the piece. But the one thing that I that I challenge myself to do is to try to get more to the viewer in terms of how I come up with the composition. Like I get lost in the space, so like my figures are typically uh, collage. Unlike Bearden, you know, Bearden would keep this, you know, this plane where you saw the cut marks, and I actually try to work to seamlessly put them together. And, and most of the men in my piece is kind of like Tim. Uh, in terms of elevating how black men are typically viewed, I use uh, dandyism as a form, you know, the, the male peacock, you know, dressed up, looking well as a form of uh, resistance against how we're typically seen in, like, the news. Um, but that's an original composition. Like, that Baldwin, the only thing I use of Baldwin was his face. I digitally composed the body of several different images and every element in that piece I'm pulling, like Google is my favorite art supply store. So, you know, rugs and a lot of the different elements. So when I'm working in Photoshop, there's literally like hundreds of layers of information and images that, are, that I digitally compose. And then I, you know, um, have, you know, produce that substrate and then go back and paint and collage into it. So it's a pretty involved process, uh, but, but to answer the question, it's definitely centered in terms of culture and uh, telling stories, I have to say stories untold or stories forgotten. Well, I didn't expect us to go down that route, but that's what this conversation's for. Um, thank you, that was a great insight to that painting in a way that I haven't seen it before. Um, so. I think this is a question, and I'm going off script because this went somewhere else. But today we were looking at Paul, your painting, and you know we have. And then we were looking at Carl's as well. And Carl talks about painting in a way where it's a very planned, and 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 in no way am I this is a bad thing, but a contrived way, like you've thought of it all the way through all the compositional devices, all of the the kind of symbolism and, and, and relationships to art history and culture and time. And then Paul, you talked about your painting as you didn't know where you started, and you started, and as you were painting, it became something, and you discovered the painting, right? So I wonder, you know, to kind of get in back into that conversation of painting, can we have a, a discussion, and maybe it's some of you might want to talk about the process of painting and how it informs how, what, what the painting becomes or the content of that painting. I think for me, uh, one of the clearer, um, the French director, uh, Robert Bresson, had a, uh, there's a small book of his, just notes and jottings he used to make while he was working, and one of the things in this book is um, an excerpt from a, a newspaper article about a robbery. And apparently a bunch of uh, safe crackers broke into a place, busted into this safe, and in that safe, they found the combination to another safe a couple doors down. So they went over there, busted into that, and in that safe, they found the keys to a strong box at another place. It was just a series of, um, of uh, uh, discoveries for them. And, and that's a lot, I think he was trying to talk about his way of working. And it's similar for me with that painting over there. It's, I don't know where the last strong box is gonna be. I just enter the first door hoping to discover things. And part of the way you discover things, um, and this is another kind of narrative, I suppose, if, you're not, if I'm not stretching the term too far, is the narrative of the paint itself. So as I'm working, trying to find where the hell I'm going with this thing, the paint is talking back at you. A lot of painters are familiar with this sort of phenomenon. And, um, but for the viewer, too, the, the paint that's building up, you can see, to some degree, that things came before and after other, other moves. So that narrative that's going on, the narrative of the discovery of the other narrative, 
uh, informs the whole piece and creates a, a certain pace and time, um, a sense of time passing that you don't get, for instance, in a, in, in a photograph or, or indeed in a lot of paintings that you see on your phone. You know, Unfortunately, you have to be in a place like this to really uh, experience that. Um, so I feel like that process of discovery is something that I'm really interested in and that I um, had to learn how to do. I think when I was in school, I really tried to come up with an idea first and then illustrate the idea, and the paintings always felt contrived. And what I started to do was discover, like basically discover the story. So in, in the paintings I have, painting I have here, I would take photos, I would take, do a photo shoot and take probably 600 photos. And it was just basically me creating a space for my models to be themselves, anything to happen, and I was just shooting. So it's really a discovery process. And then I'm really looking through all the photos and seeing which images are just kind of hitting me in this way, they're grabbing me. I might, I'm, not, I'm still not up in my mind because that just doesn't work for me. And then throughout the painting process, it goes into the technique of painting. And for me, it's about all these layers over and over, lots of little accidental marks all contained. And to me, that really speaks to how we are as humans and how we live. And so that gets brought into it. And then I've noticed, and I, I think this is so exciting, and I'm curious if other, other people have experienced this, but learning from your paintings. Like, I will make a painting. I don't know why I'm make, making it. I don't know what it's about. And then months later, something happens to me, and I'm like, that, this, that's, the painting came first. How, how did it know that I needed to learn this? Um, so it's really more, more about a discovery throughout the whole process, and I just love that. So. I mean, I, I, uh, I plan stuff out a lot, so I may be a bit different than, than like you or whatever, but, um, or, or Paul. I, uh, I, but it's not to say that I, I, I do the same thing, though, but I explore a lot in the beginning process through sketches and studies and stuff like that, and I do a lot of those before I ever even go on to making a big painting. So for me, the exploration, it happens. It just happens in a different way, you know what I mean? It's, and when I go to make the painting, I kind of have a, a fairly good idea of what um, I'm gonna do. Not that changes don't happen, changes do in fact happen, but, but um, I really like to um, kind of devote my time in the beginning to like playing with stuff and like just letting it go wherever it goes or I also you know, do a lot of writing and, and things like that and try to pull it all over and it, it, it can take anywhere from like, a year to however long to focus the thought eventually because they don't just, it's, it's not like a dissertation where it just springs right out of your head, right? It's like I, I definitely have to go over it and over it and revise and try various versions and, and all of that. And it actually would, um, anyway, it's, I, I thought I'd just throw that out there because even, even when they are planned out, uh, they're there's a lot more, it's not like there's all the creativity is somehow sucked out of it or something. It just goes on in a different way. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's a great thing for students to hear. I mean, I see students, they think they can sit in front of a painting and it will just happen. And I, you know, I love that you said today at lunch, it took me nine months to make this painting. You know, and you know that just kind of blows somebody's mind. I think that you you went through this process to get to there through these sketches and stuff. So, but I'm going to add... I just want to respond to something that Aaliyah said. Um, I feel like I also have had a very similar experience of kind of looking back at work later and understanding it very differently in retrospect. Um, any narrative painting being a really long project, like it has to get in your mind even in ways you don't necessarily understand, but you're living, you're stuck with this one idea, you're sort of obsessed with this one image. And over time, I've actually come to realize that all these different narratives in various periods are like, they're all actually self-portraits in a certain way, because they're all like, well, that painting was about harmony, or this painting was about self-doubt, or this painting is about collapse, and this painting is, right? Like, and you don't quite, and I definitely don't know that beforehand, how it is that, what is it internally that is like compelling me to stay fixated on that idea? But then later I'm like, oh, I see how that was an expression of that year, that period, yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit like a dream or something. You know, you have the dream and you don't know what it's about. And you wake up the next day and you write it down, you still don't know what it's about, but like months later, a year later, you look back and say, that was obvious. 
You know, it's like it's it's encoded, and it's like that with painting. I think in a lot of ways, you know, you're not quite sure. You know, you have to do it. You know, you're compelled to do it. You're not sure exactly why you have to do it, but you just have to do it. Um, and I, I I sort of plan mine out as well. I plan mine out with a lot of studies and pre-planning because I'd love for it to just be a straight line from beginning to end if I could, but so often. Uh, that's just not the case. Once you get on it and start writing it, it, it takes, it makes you change it. And I'm taking figures in and out the whole process. And but you know, ideally, in my, I'm always happy when I can just like, it'll look just like the study, and I just did it really, very quickly. You know, in a, a month or something. But often, it's uh, it has a life of its own, and you just have to let it have that life. And then after it leaves your studio, then everyone has their own stories, which I love hearing. If anyone wants to share what they see in my painting later, please tell me. I find that to be one of the most interesting things to see what people bring, the narrative that they bring. They, they complete it, the viewer completes it. Yeah, yeah, and like multiple, as many viewers, there's that many perspectives, so. I, one of the things, and we're all talking about process and we're talking about choosing images, or I can imagine a group of sketches for that man who's teetering, the, the man who looks a little bit crazy. The, I can imagine all the separate drawings that led up to that painting. But what I'm always saying to my students is the atmosphere is going to give you an element of surprise. Any painting that you just see all at once is a poster and it doesn't matter that much to you. You, f you feel that painting open up to you in degrees. You experience it in some ways like a movie. You've got the extraordinary tonalities at the back of that man's jacket. That green, that particular le level of green is surrounded by a kind of hot blue that stops you from extrapolating from that until you quickly run over here to the left. And I don't know what's going over there. My point is this, great painting uses the way one paints at the same time, it's using information and puts them together in a way that creates a soup that is not expected. And that thing is, a, I think that is a beautiful painting. The legs on that kid, I mean, what's that about? You know? And I just, but, but see, that kind of thing and the way those telephone poles just take me back and of course the composition and the way those things are lined up versus the, the orthogonals of the ground. I'm just saying, it, this thing is a shocking work of art. That if you, you, my kids can teach themselves from something like that when I ask them to break it down. What happens first in your experience? What is your experience of it? And then ask them why. And it's, it's I'm just looking. I've been asking the same question about those legs since I've been in here. <laughs> what, what's going on with those legs? <laughs> um, so, uh, and, and maybe this is a question, and we've touched on this a bit, a little bit through this conversation, but you know, Narrative art serves the viewer. How does narrative art serve the viewer and humanity as a whole? Like, what is its role? And I know that sounds like the big question, right? But then, you know, and you brought this up, it leaves the studio. And what is, you know, have, do you consider the context of your work after it's displayed and over time, how does that change? I mean, these works are, some of these works are 30 years old in here, right? Yeah. You know, um, and and do you cons do you think about that? Do you talk about your work different over time? Things like that. And w what is its role as narrative art? I mean, it sounds to me a lot of you are talking about the work as a dream, right? As something that you're not sure what it is, and you learn about it as you're making it through the process or over time. You wake up one day and you realize you you get it now. Um, so it's not too didactic. It's open ended in that way. So. But what happens over time with your work and how, you know, what's its role in, in expressing ideas of humanity? I'd like to say a couple of things about its role in, in light of what we were just discussing about the, the unpredictable, surprising results that we, a lot of us are aiming for, the amb ambiguous narratives. I think quite simply what, what the role that, it's, um, that it can play is to keep a window open onto certain dimensions of reality that aren't about uh, trying to persuade someone to like something, hate something, buy something, all the utilitarian sort of uh, impulses that, that we're surrounded by constantly. We're able here to, to speak, well, to speak, to, 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 to find ways to touch on things that are beyond the grasp of just reason, 
and keep a window open, as I said, on, these, on, the, on those sorts of dimensions of reality. It's, uh, it's incredibly important because we're sunk, sunk deep in the imagery and uh, aesthetics that are, well, uh, Keats said somewhere that, the poet, he said, um, he has a problem, he, he can't stand art that has designs on him. You know, you feel like you're surrounded by a visual culture that wants to mold you in its image or use you for its own ends. But with art, there's another way of seeing the world, another, a, a small crack open onto, onto those dimensions that are outside of that, that wall that's built around us. So I think it, it's a very important role that this sort of thing, this, this kind of things that uh, a lot of these paintings are, are doing, um, has for us. Yeah, exactly, Paul. I think that, uh, I mean, there's nothing didactic or dogmatic or propaganda in any of uh, our work. I mean, I think that it's, it is open-ended, and you know that once you've made it and put it out there, it's open to multiple interpretations by whoever sees it, and you have to you know, try to think it through in advance as much as you can to know what those interpretations are, but you really don't have any way to know because things haven't happened yet that will ultimately determine how people view the work in the future. Um, but what we have in common is that kind of openness and, and a searching uh, for the meaning of uh, what we're doing. I think the other thing that you made me think of is that, that narratives like storytelling, they're they're often the same stories, right? Like cyclically over centuries, over millennia, you know, human drama, human struggle, human emotion. And I think that's why I find this subject matter so compelling and, and interesting is because this, you know, our, it is very much about a, this reflection of what is it, what does it mean to be human? Um, and looking at things in the past that were narrative stories that tell me then what it felt to be human then. And then a hope that we now are making things that speak to either now or the future about what it means to be human. I mean, it is sort of arrogant and audacious to make these big paintings with the idea that like, you know, somebody might look at them, you know? Like, it, maybe it's better that it's out of our control. But, um, but that is, I think, the hope that uh, with painting, like you're trying to make this permanent thing that, that is gonna tell a story about what it meant to be alive in a certain place. And it's comforting to me that these stories are very perennial. I'd like to take a stab at that. So for me, um, particularly with the piece that's on exhibit, you know, like the caveman all the way back in the day, that you know, they, want, they made their mark. And, you know, I'm 50. And over the last, I would say, five years, I've seen more and more representation of, of Baldwin, and I started to listen to some of the lectures. And I wanted to, you know, make my mark. You know, I wanted to, look, I've seen what my contemporaries have done, and that's why I titled the piece the way that I did, This My Baldwin, you know? And I wanted to pay homage to James Baldwin, um, the icon, you know, in my own, in my own way. So that's, that's part of the reason why I did that particular piece. Is, is, is to kind of, you know, be in conversation with my contemporaries that, are, that, that have done their interpretation of Baldwin, so. The, we kind of went, I, I, was, I was intending this question to be the first question, <laughs> but all of a sudden we went down this path, which has been a wonderful discussion. But really, you know, I, I really am curious of what artists are you looking at, both historical and really more contemporaries, and uh, what, how have they impacted you know, the narratives that you're creating, how have they impacted the, the, the kind of image making that you, you develop and compositions you developed, um, and, I'm, and this is open to anybody in this group here. Um, I know for me that um, uh, artists that, they tend to change over time, but if, if they're sort of a, a, you know, a central collective of, of historical artists, um, they would probably read and in common with with many of the artists at the table here, and uh, but you know not necessarily all, but um, uh, old masters like Caravaggio, Velasquez, Rembrandt, Vermeer, um, you know the list goes on and on, kind of originating from the Renaissance and going into into the Baroque period, but then um, you know a lot of wonderful painters from the 19th century as well. Um, but, uh, you know, I've already mentioned about Bo being an influence and other um, contemporary painters uh, like Vincent Desiderio, 
Um, and uh, I think you know, we, a, lot of, a lot of us up here have some, some of those characters in common. I think one of the reasons this show means a lot to me personally is because, frankly, like, I think, and I think we all, as a group, like, we look at each other's work all the time. And, uh, you know, I look at Zoe's work, and I look at Aaliyah's work, and I look at Bo's work, and I look at Noah's work, and I look at Carl's work, and I look at Margaret's work, and I look at Michelle's work, and I'm going to look at your work now that, you know, like, there's been new, meeting new people. And so I feel like we're, we are, like, this very odd little tribe of people who are, like, for weirdly devoted to this thing. But I, I think the people who influence me most are other artists who are making contemporary figurative narrative work. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I, I have folders on my computer full of images by you guys. So I've been looking at your work forever, and I, I'm hugely influenced by what the contemporary people are doing. And um, I think it's growing. I, I don't know about you guys that teach, but I see a lot of uh, students, uh, this uh, fixation on narrative st structures and start, it's like huge right now with the, the kids these days, you know? Like, I have lots of students that are really into it, but like a lot of the contemporaries, like yourselves, I'm, I, I'm hugely influenced by. And for some reason, like I was saying last night, I have this weird obsession with William Blake lately. I don't know what it is. They're just something weirdly architect. They're just weird. I love the, they're crazy. I like them. Anyway, so William Blake's for me. Woo! I love Blake too, actually. <laughs> um, I was going to say, uh, we were discussing this earlier a little bit. Um, I think it's Fairfield Porter who had this quote about... Um, the important thing in abstraction is the subject, and the important thing in representational painting is the abstraction. And it's one of the things that first made me notice uh, Bo's work is, is the incredibly sophisticated abstraction underlying things. And that's not just good design or, or, or good composition. It's a sensitivity to the shapes, the marks, the, the masses, uh, to it's how that contributes to the feeling, to the quality of feeling, the, um, uh, those intangibles that you're, you're seeking at, the way a musician's trying to gauge a sequence of notes, what is it, what is it saying? And so for me, recently, I've been looking at an unusual little, um, little, an obscure, I suppose, at least outside of his home country, a uh, symbolist painter from, uh, contemporary with James Ensor, uh, Léon Spilliert, which is a, Flemish name, very austere, all works on paper, um, mostly ink with watercolor and a little bit of colored pencil or something, but it's quite simple shapes. Um, he did illustrations for the plays of Maeterlinck, some of which are just a white rectangle for a window, maybe a vaguely figurative shape, kneeling, and uh, you know, one or two objects. Um, incredibly powerful. And I, I was thinking that this exhibition uh, could be restaged at some point, interestingly, with, with each large painting accompanied by a tiny little black and white simple um, piece uh, to just demonstrate how the power of an of a individual work of art is, um, it's not really relative to its size. It's, it's, got, it's about something else. And the abstraction is a big part of that. So uh, that's my one contribution. Check him out, Léon Spilliert. It's a bizarre name, so it's easy to Google. <laughs> I was just going to say, like, I've, we live in an extraordinary time to be a figurative artist. And when I first started, like, pursuing my desire to paint and I went to undergrad, I was definitely, um, you know, dissuaded from figurative work. Um, and I was very much inspired by like de Kooning and, and artists that were of the abstract expressionist era. Um, but then as I continued to have this desire to paint representationally, my professors were like, look at Mary Cassatt and Degas and the old masters. And so that, that was like my definite foundation. I didn't feel like I had contemporary painters to inspire uh, me. And then I discovered um, Eric Fischel, and that actually brought me to the New York Academy of Art. And now, like, my world, my mind just explodes with inspiration of contemporary artists doing what I've always dreamt of and loved to do. So I just feel so privileged right now, living in a time where, like, you can make not only like 
all work of art, all works of art, all genres. You know, if you want to be abstract, but you can also be a figurative abstract painter or. Um, you know, like there's just, it's open to so much. And if you want to be s sarcastic in your paintings or heartbreaking or a narrative painter in those realms, it's just like you, f you have your people out there and your inspirations out there to um, discover and find and more than, more than ever. So it's, I don't know, it's just exciting to me. It's awesome. When you brought up abstraction just now, I thought of this. All right. We're now living in a wonderful period of abstraction. Sorry. Um, when I came into the game, America won the war, so those cats were considered painters. Those, all of that work's being re you know, being discussed at this point. Because we have abstract artists like Mark Bradford, you've got some people out there who are creating story out of out of a textural connection. Like in other words, a na narrative is, the, is these two things being in a room together and what if this one is smashed and suddenly this wa water starts to move down there and leaps over that edge, suddenly we're talking about the death of the planet. Now you look at, you look at a, a, a I'm, I'm all right, this is what's going on in New York. When you look at a Rothko, I mean, a, I won't go there. If you look at a Pollock, you've basically got a nice design in the middle and nothing's going off the edges. So there's, there isn't a sense of atmosphere in this work. And when I was a child, no one would touch this with a 10-foot pole. But because we've got really big deal abstract artists doing basically narrative work, things are really exciting. And that was going to lead to my next question. So you were talking about this idea of abstraction just being explo just exploding. But we're also at this time where there's a pluralism in art, right? And especially even narrative figurative art, where we have a lot of groups being represented at this point, right? It used to be only the white man club, and now there's a new group of people that are being represented in these works um, and, and their stories are being told. And I'm wondering if anybody wants to talk about that because, you know, well, we had Jerry Saltz here. Jerry Saltz was talking about this the whole time. Like, look, there's so much work out there. There's, and, and anything goes now and there's bad and there's good and it's hard to define the difference between the, the bad and the good. And, you know, what, what I guess I'm asking you all and maybe it's just more of a discussion what has changed? How's it changed in your mind? Um, you know, what are the benefits? What are maybe some of the, the, the kind of downfalls of that? Like, right, there are no cannons anymore. Everything's kind of just exploded, as Margaret has talked about. And um, maybe you can talk about that a little bit in your own way. All right. Now I've forgotten what I was going to say. Um, when I was an undergraduate in the early 80s, you could still talk about definable movements, neo-expressionism, neo-geo, um, and of course, as you're just, just saying, it, it's become much more pluralistic, and I mean, it was already fairly pluralistic, but it, even more so, which is good, but we have lost, it's, it's a bit more difficult to get your mind around what's out there. You know, you don't have these nice categories. Yes, they were Procrustean, they were, they were you know, chopping off a great deal of important stuff, but it, in a way it was easier to have some very generalized concept of what was out there and what, and what the main thrusts were. So I feel that's one of the losses, but I don't think I would want to go back to that because the gains are probably greater. But we do now have a bit of a, yeah, almost a Babel-like condition in the art world that Maybe I'm speaking for myself here. I find it hard to get my mind around. I actually do have something to say here. Um, <laughs> I feel like something that's very exciting about everything being possible these days is everything is possible, and that means we get to actually invent languages that might include multiple languages, uh, multiple genres, and um, I'm saying that because my work has personally changed over the last couple of years and includes um, things that could be I abstract, and I find that that, you know, at one point painting was dead. Painting was considered dead. You couldn't do anything else with painting. But now I feel like that's not at all the case. There's so, there's every single day, there's someone inventing some new language. And I think that's because there are all these different ways of painting that actually the boundaries are getting blurred. And then new windows, bring the windows back in, new windows are opening. 
and I think that's just an incredible, it's an incredibly exciting time. It's overwhelming too, but it's an incredibly exciting time, I think, to be an artist, to get to not feel like we need to stay in our one way of working. We can, we can see where it goes. I think for me to talk about it, I would probably have to really give some context just a little bit about not only being an artist, but I'm also the founder of Black Art in America, a collector and a producer. And I would say over the last, I'm excited about the diversity and the opportunity for artists of color to have an opportunity to show, be in more museum shows, show up at auction. Um, my first time at Miami Art Basel in 2010, there was probably, there's definitely more people of color in this room than there weren't in that entire fair at that time. And a lot has changed um, in the last 13 years. Um, and so, I'm also thankful for the market, <laughs> I would say, because the market has allowed myself as an artist and collector, Black Art in America was built on the fact that I was a successful artist. Right, but my wife and I, Satiria, we're very active collectors, and we've actually got two works on loan that's a part of this show. And so I think it's important for to, to not only acknowledge um, the market opening up and opportunities opening up, but being an artist, we don't have to necessarily be boxed in. I hate being boxed in when people want to see me as an artist because I think we have more capacity than that. And so as a collector, you know, I was pleased to, when, when I got the call from Mike to say, hey, you know, what, you know, what do you got? I said, well, I got this great work by Alpha Conte and Tim Short. And Tim, I would love to see you talk more. I mean, this is a brilliant young artist right here from, this is his hometown. And to be given the first time for him to show in his hometown with his folks, right? Mama Nim can come in and celebrate. That's important, you know? So. I showed that Tim Short to those three, the curators, and they're like, that's got to be in this show. It was with no hesitation. It was just right away. So, do you want to? <laughs> yeah, the pressure's definitely on. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm just appreciative and, um, you know, you never know what's going to happen when you, you know, step out into like a creative space. I mean, we were talking about process earlier and I feel like I'm never viewing a painting to sell. So I'm like approaching painting as an opportunity for me to express myself. And when that expression is done, you know, I'm, I'm on to the next one, you know, it's just like, you know, a continuous like free flowing of thoughts and just, you know, getting, you know, the cinema of my mind out onto a, a page or a piece. And then I'm just, you know, I'm moving on. But as far as like who I'm looking at, I mean, I'm looking at people from my community in Atlanta, like Najee Dorsey, like Kevin Williams or um, Fabian Williams, um, just a lot of people who um, I feel have paid, paved the way. I mean, I'm looking at uh, Kerry James Marshall, I would say um, uh, Nadine Pierre, I really like her stuff, um, Jordan Castile, um, Harmonia Rosales, like a lot of people who are just, you know, putting their work out there and they're just getting opportunities. And, you know, I'm, I'm not looking at painting as a way of opportunity. I'm just, you know, I, I do it not necessarily to survive because I'm not surviving off painting. So I'm just, I do it because I just love it. So um, just having a piece that is so personal to me, to me in this space, you know, it's a welcome opportunity. I really appreciate Nashi for doing that for me. But, um, I mean, I, you know, I do think that I try to communicate through the work and I just hope that the communication is strong with what I create. Is, is that good? Yeah, it sounds like Nadia needs to sell more of your paintings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, just all kidding aside. Um, how, I, one last question for you, Tim, and then I have one more question, and then I think we should give it to the audience. But, Tim, how does it feel having your painting right next to Amy Sherrill? Both, and I didn't know this, I didn't even think about it until after the fact. You're both Columbus natives. She's like 20 years older than you, I suspect. I mean, thinking about where you are. Uh, you know, how does that feel? Um, it's, it's a surreal experience. I feel like it's still surreal. Um, you know, she was a working artist long before, you know, what a lot of people view her claim to fame was with the Michelle Obama portrait. But, you know, now she did that so I get to tell everybody, you know, yo, I'm next to the artist who made the Michelle Obama portrait. But I mean, you know, um, 
I mean, it's 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 surreal. Um, you know, uh, you know, one of the driving points of me being an artist is just so that my folks are proud of me and that, you know, I just, you know, they, they look at it and they can take pride in what I do and I feel like this is just a s small way of me, you know, or even a big way of me accomplishing that. So, I mean, it's, it's wild. I mean, I can't, I can't believe it even when I'm looking at it, you know. I mean, my aunt over there just smiling at me, you know. <laughs> You know, it's, I mean, it's, I mean, it's wild, you know, I just, you know, we as artists, you know, like I said, you never know what's going to happen with your work. So you're just hoping, hoping somebody takes notice and I feel like this is people taking notice. So, you know, I'm appreciative. I just, I'm thankful, you know, I'm glad my dad is back there, you know, he, he been on my case about making sure he got the dates right and he can show up and support me. So, you know, my mom, you know, I'm just happy. So one last question, and, I, and maybe nobody, not everybody can answer this, but it's for the whole group. You have 10 artists here. It sounds like you've known each other or known of each other's work for a long time. Here's your opportunity to ask one of your colleagues here a question that you've always wanted to ask. In front of the public, of course. This is <laughs> so. Here's your chance, Margaret. I I know you got a good one. <laughs> Maybe one of you, and and then I think we should give it to the group. But somebody's got to have a question for somebody else here. Um, I guess this is for Bo. Um, I just want to say that you know I told you this earlier, but I want to hear the, or I want the audience to hear that. You know, I grew up in Columbus, and I remember my dad taking me to the Columbus Museum and seeing that bonfire painting. So, I mean, just, I haven't seen that in years, but I still remember it, so I just feel like this is a full circle moment just to be sitting here next to you, because I, I was very young when I saw that, so. But um, I would say as far as when you, you know, what was it like initially starting out? Like, was there, was there struggle trying to maintain you know, a, a studio practice as an artist? Like, what was that like initially starting out? Yeah, initially starting out, I mean, I think, you know, I, I was young and full of bravado, and I, I thought, you know, like, I was going to take the world by storm, you know, and I thought, well, I'll make the biggest paintings I could possibly make so that, you know, like, people would have to see them. You know, you, you make a little small painting, if somebody can stick it, you know, under a curtain or something or hide it away, but you make a big giant painting, it's got to be out there. So, but I, you know, when I was first starting out, I mean, the, no one wanted to be see big giant figurative paintings, but um, and there was no market for them. But I, you know, learned to paint portraits so that I could make a living. So I would uh, every day I would, you know, in the morning I would have some portrait client sitting, and I would paint uh, from nine to twelve, paint a portrait to survive. And you know, I had no money whatsoever. I was in Philadelphia, and I'd been to the Pennsylvania Academy, and you know, my studio was $100 a month on fourth floor walk up, you know, on Chestnut Street, and I, uh, you know, had a wood burning stove, and I would lug the wood up there, and you know, throw it in the wood burning stove, and I'd freeze all winter. The uh, portrait clients all had red noses and red ears, um, <laughs> um, but you know, you, you would you would do what you had to do to survive and bring money in for the family, and then you do what you had to do to, you know, for your soul. So all afternoon, I would always be making paintings that, you know, were, were exploring the kind of paintings I wanted to make just to bring out into the world. Um, so there's that balance, it's a life-work balance kind of thing where you just, you're trying to bring out into the world what you need to bring out, but at the same time, you're, you know, being responsible and feeding the family. So it's just, just balance, I think. You know, I think that we all have a story. We all have our own stories, you know, and that's the thing I mean, about making paintings. We, we all have our own stories. Everybody has their, their story. And the thing you want to do with the painting is you want to make a painting that um, is very personal to you, but it allows the viewer to have their story, allows the viewer to want to tell their story. So, you know, something very personal and um, uh, private can uh, actually... Uh, break open and be universal. If you tell your story, you know clearly and succinctly, then you're able to um, 
someone can find, and, and truthfully, you know, someone can find connection with it and be liberated and given permission to tell their story in whatever form that is. Thanks to the Art House Radio team, Bo Bartlett, Juliana Wells, and Matthew Moon. You can find more about us on Instagram at Art House Radio. Thanks for listening to Art House Radio. We'll be back next week with another episode with Bo Bartlett. Take care of yourself. Take care of others.